If you have a Bible, you can open to Psalm 119. We're going to begin in verse 153. There's an outline in the bulletin where you can follow along. And as we've mentioned a few times this morning, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We will not be coming by with the elements, uh, passing those out. So if you need those and you would like to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us, we have them at the back of the sanctuary. And you're welcome to get up and grab those so that you're ready. Psalm 119, we're going to read from verse 153 down to verse 160, and then we're going to pray and ask that God would bless the reading of his word. Psalm 119, verse 153. Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I look at the faithless with disgust, because they do not keep your commands. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Father, this morning we're thankful for your steadfast love, and we thank you that you sent your Son to live for us and to die for us. We thank you for your Spirit who brings life out of death. And Father, as we come towards the end of Psalm 119, we thank you for your word that bears witness to who you are and what your character is and all that you've done to save us. So be honored this morning as we submit our thinking and our living to the authority of your word. We do it and we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been in Psalm 119 for a while now, including this morning, we have three more Sundays, so... Uh, The last two Sundays of the year will be the last two stanzas of Psalm 119. By now, many of you, I think, know that what we're dealing with here is a poem. It's an acrostic poem. It's built on the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. There's a stanza devoted to each letter. This morning, we're on the 20th letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is the letter Resh. And if you look at this stanza in Hebrew, you'll find that the first letter of the first word of each line of poetry begins with this 20th letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the letter Resh. And so there's a built-in mnemonic device to help the reader uh, remember each section. And it's sort of a prompt uh, to get someone going on understanding and memorizing and meditating on the truths of Psalm 119. All total, there's 176 verses. Almost all of them make some direct reference to the Word of God. And just remind you this morning, and keep this in mind, especially the next two Sundays, that all of these various words are more or less used interchangeably. Sometimes there's a particular emphasis in one particular word, but mostly what the psalmist is doing, I think, is using a variety of words to talk about the Scriptures, 
God's written word to his people, what you and I would call the Bible. And so rather than say the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible in every single verse, he uses a variety of words. In this particular stanza, there's eight verses of poetry, like all the stanzas have eight verses of poetry, and there are nine references to the word of God in this particular stanza. You'll notice verse 160, all the way down there at the end, mentions word and rules. It doubles up with two references. So I hope by now, we're 20 weeks in, you have figured out basically how we're figuring out or discerning the big idea of each stanza. The whole poem is about the Word of God. And so every big idea that we've pulled throughout this sermon series has dealt with the Word of God in some way, shape, or form. And each individual stanza has a unique theme or an emphasis, and so you pull out that unique theme or emphasis, and you couple it with the overarching theme of God's Word, and this morning, here's your big idea. The Word of God contains the good news of what God has done to save a people for His glory. We're thinking this morning about salvation, and we know that this message of salvation is not written in the clouds in the sky. It's not something we just intuitively know and understand when we're born, but it's a message of salvation that is revealed to us in the Word of God. The Word of God contains the good news of the gospel of what God has done to save sinners for His glory. Now, we need to establish one simple, basic Bible truth before we try to process what the psalmist says here. This Bible truth comes from a man who lived hundreds and hundreds of years ago, a man who literally tried to run away from the Lord, a man who found himself thrown overboard off the ship that he was on running away from the Lord, a man who was swallowed by a giant fish and taken to the depths of the ocean all before he had one small moment of sanity. And in that belly of that fish at the bottom of the ocean, Jonah had a light bulb moment. And one of the things that he said in Jonah 2.9 is, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Some translations say salvation is from the Lord or salvation is of the Lord. But the root idea in all of these translations is the same. Salvation is the Lord's and it is His to give. Salvation is not the result of you coming to a worship service three out of four Sundays during Christmas month. Say 75%, that's pretty good. Christmas month, I was at church. It's not how a person receives salvation. Salvation is not the result of you cleaning your life up. Although when you understand the good news of the gospel and the Holy Spirit moves you from death to life and indwells you and begins to grow you, your life will change. But you cleaning your life up is not how you receive salvation. You not doing certain things, like I'm not going to say bad words or I'm not going to listen to certain music or watch certain shows. I'm going to abstain from certain behaviors. You not doing things is not how you receive the gift of salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's from the Lord. It's of the Lord. 
and it is his gift that he gives to his people. That was true in ancient Israel around 800 B.C. And Jonah found out it was also true at the bottom of the ocean in about 800 B.C. And Jonah found out, if you keep reading in the book, that it was also true in Nineveh about the 8th century B.C. And Jonah would tell us today that in the 21st century in Odessa, Texas, it's still true. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, the question we want to deal with is very simple. What do we learn in this race stanza? And admittedly, there's a lot of different things we could pull out and talk about. There's a lot of things in this stanza that we have seen. Not surprisingly, we're at the back end of this long poem. We've seen a lot of these ideas. I love your word and lots of different themes that we've seen repeated. We just want to think about this big idea of the Word of God, revealing the message of salvation to the people of God. And I want us to work backwards through this stanza. So we're going to start down at the bottom. Here's the first thing we learn from this stanza. The Word of God, God's Word, is entirely and eternally true. It is entirely true. That's one truth. And it's eternally true. It's a separate truth connected to the first. Entirely and eternally true. Verse 159. He says, I love your precepts. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth. When you take the scriptures and you add it all up together and you step back and you say, what am I dealing with here? What you're dealing with is truth. It is entirely true. The sum of your words is truth. Every one of your righteous rules endures forever. It is entirely true. All the words are true. And it is eternally true. It endures forever. So let's just think about each of those in turn very basically. First of all, it's entirely true. When the Bible speaks about a thing, whatever that thing is, it's true. When the Bible speaks about our origins in the creation of the universe, it's true. And when the Bible speaks about God's design for human beings being made in His image, male and female, it's true. And when the Bible speaks about God's design for marriage, it's true. When the Bible speaks about our sinfulness, which we're going to talk about this morning, is painfully true. When the Bible speaks about salvation and how a person can be moved from death to life, it's true. When the Bible speaks looking forward from our vantage point about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, although many people say, where is His coming? He said He was coming for so many years and He's never come. When the Bible says that Jesus will return, it's true. It's entirely true. Entirely true. Let's look at a few verses. Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. It's true. It's true. Look at the verse that we ended with last week. Verse 152, he says, Long have I known your testimonies that you have founded them forever. Notice what the author of Proverbs says. I'll just give you a few other verses. Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in Him. 
In Psalm 119, it's every word. The sum of your words is truth. The author of Proverbs says every word of God proves true. Jesus in John 17, 17, praying for his disciples, asking that God would send the Spirit to sanctify his people, says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It is entirely true, and it is eternally true. One of the most beautiful verses in the Bible is found in the book of Isaiah, and then it's quoted in the New Testament in 1 Peter. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. When you go through the changing of the seasons, you should think about this verse. The leaves fall from the tree, and the Bermuda grass crumbles and turns yellow. The tumbleweeds start blowing across the highway. We don't have a lot of flowers or beautiful grass, but you see all of those things and you say, they die, they fade. God's Word doesn't. It's entirely true and it's eternally true. I just want to talk to you as your pastor. I can't explain to you how much I want and pray for each of you that you understand this and believe it in the depth of your heart. That the Word of God is entirely true and eternally true. There are an amazing number, a growing number of churches in the United States that openly question that or openly reject that premise. You can find them even right here in Odessa, Texas. Sometimes people say, I don't care what church you go to, I just want you to go to church. And I cringe inside and sometimes outside because I think there's a lot of churches I don't want you to go to. Because you're going to walk into that church and they're going to tell you that this book is not true. This book says that it is true. And the Spirit of God bears witness on our hearts that this book is true. It's entirely true and it's eternally true. Now look, my hunch is you guys are here at the 830 service. You probably believe it's true. Who knows about that group at 11? That's a mixed bag. But this is the 830 18. So I have a hunch that most of you, if I just pulled you aside after and I said, hey, talk to me about that first sermon point. Are you with me on that? Do do you agree with me? I think most of you, maybe not all, but I think most of you would say, yes, I believe that. I, I agree with that. Some of you may not be there. And we'd love to visit with you about that and make our case about why we believe this book is true. But I think most of you are there. As your pastor, I just want to give you one more warning. I think it's entirely possible for a person to affirm that the Bible is true, they believe it's entirely true and eternally true, and at the same time to believe things about this book that are not true. Do you understand what I'm saying? In the abstract, it's possible to say, no, I think this book is true. It's the Bible. It's the Word of God. I want to base my life on this book. But it's possible that you really don't know what the book says. And I think there's two ways this happens in the lives of church-going people. Number one, just assume that you already know everything that's in the Bible. Just assume that you have it all figured out. And you can say, with great integrity and sincerity, I believe that it's true. But if you think you've mastered all of it and you have nothing else to learn, you might be saying, I think this book is true and be completely wrong about what it actually says. Secondly, and I'm throwing myself under the bus on this one. 
Just assume that everything you've heard from a pastor, a parent, or YouTube about the Bible is true. Well, I read it online. Someone was talking about the Bible. I saw a Facebook post about it. Ten people I know shared it. My pastor used to always say growing up, or my, my grandma or my parent used to always say growing up, just assume that everything you've ever heard about it is true and don't actually read it. In the abstract, you can say, I believe the Word of God is true, but in practice, you're missing it. So this is just me speaking to you as your pastor. I pray for you, for our church, for our Bible study classes, for your families, that in the depths of who we are, we believe what Psalm 119 says about the Bible, that it is entirely and eternally true. And I also pray that we, your pastor included, have the humility to constantly submit our thinking and our believing and our living to the authority of God's Word. And that we be willing to say, you know, I've thought such and such for a long time, but I think I was wrong about that because I'm reading something different in the Word of God. So number one, the Word of God is entirely and eternally true. Number two, God's Word is honest about human depravity. Human depravity. If you notice in verse 157, he talks about persecutors and adversaries. And then on verse 158, he talks about the faithless who do not keep God's commands. He's talking about human depravity here, and he's just being honest about it. Something our culture has a hard time doing. Essentially, what the psalmist believes about human beings boils down to what theologians call original sin. And in our brains, we hear original sin, and we think, oh, that's Adam and Eve in the garden, right? The original sin. But that's not what theologians are talking about when they talk about original sin. What a theologian means when they talk about original sin is the fact that when you are born, you are born with a sinful nature. You are born fallen, sinful, separated and alienated from God. It's not that you're born basically good, neutral, right in the middle, and that as soon as you do your first bad thing, whatever age that happens, then you become a sinner. The Bible's teaching, and the Bible is honest about this from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible's teaching is that you are actually born a sinner. And the reason you grow up and do many things that are sinful is that you're born with this sinful, fallen, wicked, rebellious nature. It's original sin. It's what the psalmist meant when he says, Surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the moment my mother conceived me. Sinful from the womb. Before he had done any sinful thing, he was born with this fallen, sinful nature. Now, that's not a flattering view of human beings, but it's the biblical view of human beings. This is one of the reasons Christmas is so important. It's been trendy in recent years for people to say, you know, this book isn't entirely true. All that business about the virgin birth and the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary, we don't believe in that kind of nonsense. That's not how people are born and you don't need that to celebrate Christmas. I'm not sure this book is entirely true in what it claims. No, it is true in what it claims and it is important that Jesus was born of a virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit, because he was born without this fallen, sinful nature that we're all born with. The Bible says that you and I, 
all of us other than Jesus, are born with a sinful nature so that a verse like Genesis 6-5 is true of us. The Lord looks down and he sees that every intention of the thoughts of their heart are only evil continually. That's who we are. If you want a New Testament parallel, you could look at Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, where Paul says, left to ourselves, we're dead in our trespasses and sins, spiritually dead. And we follow the course of this world, we follow the prince of the power there, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, and we follow our own fallen sinful flesh, spiritually dead. Now, I just want to share with you two subpoints here and think about some application. I'm not going to put these on the screen because there's no blank for you to fill out. Subpoint number one, the Bible insists that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. You've heard that. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and they've fallen short of God's glory. This sinful condition that we're talking about for human beings is true for all of us. Not just some of us. Not just mass murderers. Not just the people that gross you out or weird you out. Not just the people who make it on dateline because they've committed some horrible crime. This is true of all of us. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. I think generally speaking, when I'm talking with people and they're wrestling with things in their life, their personal life, their family life, things they're suffering with, they're struggling with, many times they have not really been grounded in this truth that all of us, all of us are born sinners and we've all sinned against God and we've all fallen short of His glory and we are all under a curse and only when you really understand that can you rightly process the things that happen in this world and the things that happen in your life. So the Bible's clear about this. All of us have sinned. Our culture struggles with that. Our struggle has removed the objective external outside of us, the law of God and an ultimate standard for right and wrong, and they've replaced it with subjective feelings in emotions and hunches. So that what matters is not how do you measure up to this external standard of God's law. Well, you don't measure up. What matters is how do you feel about a certain thing? What's your opinion on that thing? And so our culture struggles with this idea that all have sinned, and we're going to come back to that struggle in just a minute. That's subpoint one, all have sinned. Here's subpoint two. The Bible recognizes that there are Righteous people and wicked people. The Bible's honest about this. There's righteous people and wicked people. Spiritually speaking, the Bible can walk and chew gum at the same time. Okay? The Bible can say, all people are sinful. All people. And the Bible can look at individuals in specific situations and honestly say, you know what, that's a righteous person and that's a wicked person. I'll just give you some examples of how the Bible speaks about this. The book of Proverbs is filled with this kind of language. Just read the book of Proverbs. The fool, the wise person. The fool, the wise person. The wicked person, the righteous person. They're contrasted all the way through the book. Men like Noah, Abraham, David, Job. They're all described as righteous men. They're all sinful men. All of them have sins recounted in the scriptures, things that they did where they fell short of God's glory. They were all born with a sinful nature. The Bible's not saying they're sinless or perfect. 
Bible's just saying, look, these men trusted God and God credited righteousness to them. And God was at work in them and they were trying to order their life according to God's word. And the Bible just says, point blank, look, these guys were different. Noah was different than the violent people around him. And Abraham was different than the pagan people around him. And David was different than Saul who was so faithless and selfish. Job was different than all of these people who lived around him in the east. Were they sinless? No. But they were different, and the Bible acknowledges that. You see the same thing when the Bible talks about the kings of Judah. All the kings of Israel were wicked. Kings of Judah. All of them start off with, he was a good king, like David. Or, he was a bad king. And here's why. None of those kings were sinless. None of them were perfect. But the Bible is honest in being able to step back and say there is a difference in these pagan, idolatrous, wicked kings and those who are seeking to order their life according to God's word. Now, why are we we talking about all that? I want you to think about the world you live in, the culture you live in. We've removed the objective standard of God's word from evaluating ourselves. So there's a very real sense in which we look at each other in the world and we think about right and wrong and it just, it just boils down to what, what do you think? How do you feel about it? What do you want to be true for you? You have to create your own story. You have to chart your own path. So you have to do it your way. Frank Sinatra, did it my way. Do it your way. Whatever you think. And people are very slow to pass judgment on each other. And then at the same time, We all have this nagging thing inside of us that says, you're not all that you should be. It's called your conscience. It's given to you by God. Romans 2. And our conscience sort of reminds us, I'm not who I ought to be. You're probably not who you ought to be, but I'm not supposed to say anything bad about you because you're going to do it your own way. And we are morally confused as a society. Let me give you two examples. Number one, Hollywood. Brooke and I watched a movie just about two weeks ago. We don't watch a lot of movies, but we had an open night. We watched a movie at home on the TV. And we're watching this movie, and it was a cop show. Had cops and special agents and drug dealers and all the sort of stuff you can imagine. And they're trying to find, you really don't know what they're trying to find throughout the movie, and you're just kind of along for the journey. Now, here's the thing. You come to the end of the movie, and you sit there and you say to yourself, Who was the good guy in that movie? I'm not really sure who the good guy was. Because I think it was this guy, but he did some really bad stuff in that movie. And then you say, well, who was the bad guy? And you say, well, well, I think it was this guy was the bad guy. I kind of like him. I mean, the way they told the story, he's relatable. I I, I feel like I, you know, I kind of like that guy. The good guy seems, I don't know, and you're left scratching your head. Who's the good guy and who's the bad guy? Why does Hollywood make movies that are so confusing in terms of who the good guy is and who the bad guy is? It's not as simple as who's got the white hat on or the black hat on anymore. It's because they're confused about right and wrong, good and evil. They're confused. And so they tell these stories that are confusing. Can I give you a real world example of the same thing? Maybe you've noticed over the last couple months that people, not all people, but some people 
in our country have had a really, really hard time openly and directly and clearly condemning the terrorist attacks that Hamas carried out on Israel. And they try to wiggle and they try to dodge and they say, well, you know, I, I don't know this and that, you know, it's unfortunate. It's, you know, I wish that hadn't happened. And they say everything but that was wrong and there should be justice. It seems so obvious to some of us. Why is it so not obvious to others? Well, partly it's a worldview issue. They've adopted this sort of critical theory, Marxist version of colonialism and power and race and all sorts of stuff. But partly it just boils down to confusion about right and wrong, good and evil, black and white, things that are obvious. And I think the Bible provides us with a platform, a rock under our feet, a, a worldview that is true entirely and eternally and that is clear. Look, the Bible says all of us have sinned. You are no exception. Israel is no exception. Just because you attend Emmanuel Baptist Church, you're no exception. All have sinned. And the Bible is also clear that there is obvious wickedness in the world and there is obvious examples, are obvious examples of people who are trusting in the Lord and they want to order their lives according to his word. And the Bible speaks plainly about these. And I bring this up this morning because it's an issue in our culture. And we've seen this throughout Psalm 119. Where the psalmist talks about those wicked people. And to our ears, that sounds so judgy. And condescending. And arrogant. But it's because of the culture that we live in that is so confused about right and wrong. I promise you, we'll see this the very last Sunday of this year. The psalmist who wrote Psalm 119 knew he was a sinner. I promise you. But he also had moral clarity to step back and to say, that's wicked, and this is somebody who's seeking the Lord. And he talks about human depravity, and he does it very honestly. So that brings us to a third truth. God's Word is the story of what the triune God has done to save a people for His glory. So obviously, this is close to our big idea what we're adding here is the idea that the triune God is the one who has saved a people for His glory. So let's look in Psalm 119. Look at verse 153. I want you to notice what the psalmist is asking for right out of the gate. What are his requests? Well, he says, I want you to look on my affliction. I want you to be aware of what's happening to me. And he wants the Lord to deliver him. I need deliverance. In verse 54, he's asking for the Lord to plead his cause, to be his advocate. God, would you be my advocate and would you redeem me? Verse 154, I need you to give me life. I don't, I don't have it and I need you to give it to me. It's yours to give. Verse 155 speaks directly about salvation. Salvation is far from the wicked. Why? It's because they're far from God's word. They don't seek God's statutes. So he's asking for deliverance and an advocate and someone to redeem him and someone to save him. Now here's what I want to do as we wrap up this final point. I want to back up from Psalm 119 and I want you to see something in full biblical context. Sometimes if you're too close to the trees, you can't see the forest. So we're just going to step back from Psalm 119 for a minute 
And I want to acknowledge something about salvation in the Bible. Many times in the Old Testament, when God saves his people, he saves them from an external threat or danger. And so I could give you lots of examples of this. Let me just put a few up on the screen for you to think about. How about Genesis 6? God saves Noah out of a violent world, and he saves him from the flood that destroyed the world. Those are external threats, and God saved Noah from those dangers. What about in the book of Exodus? God's people were in bondage in Egypt, and God saved them out of that bondage. What about in Joshua and Judges? God fought for his people, and he brought them into the promised land, and he defeated their enemies, real pagan peoples, wicked peoples, who had had four centuries to repent and to get their lives in order. God saved Israel from their enemies. What about 1 Samuel 17? God saved Israel from a giant named Goliath, and he used a small shepherd boy to do it. That was an external threat. He was as real as the chair you're sitting on. What about 2 Chronicles 20? King Jehoshaphat being invaded by an alliance of foreign nations. God saved him from that army. What about a few chapters later in 2 Chronicles 31? Hezekiah being invaded by the Assyrians after they just conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, an external threat. And Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah, they both looked to the Lord and they said, God, you're going to have to do this. You're going to have to save us because we cannot save ourselves. And God saved his people from all of these external threats. Now, here's what you see if you step back and you're looking not just at the trees, but at the forest. As you keep reading in the Old Testament, in the timeline. God's people start to wrestle with a different but related question. They they stop thinking so much about salvation from external things, and they begin to wrestle with the question of who's going to save us from ourselves? God can save us from floods and from Egypt and from the Canaanites and the Philistines and the Assyrians. God can save us from all of those people. Who's going to save us from us? One of my favorite authors and musicians is a man named Andrew Peterson. About 20 years ago, he wrote a Christmas album called Behold the Lamb of God. It's basically the story of the Bible. It's not just the story of Matthew and Luke, but it's the story of the Bible with Christmas at the center. And on this album, he has a song called Deliver Us. Deliver Us. Remember what the psalmist said here? Deliver me. So I just want to read you some of the words from this song, Deliver Us, that I think helps us understand what we're driving at. Our enemy, our captor, is no Pharaoh on the Nile. Our toil is neither mud nor brick nor sand. Our ankles bear no calluses from chains, yet, Lord, we're bound. Imprisoned here, we dwell in our own land. Our sins, they are more numerous than all the lambs we slay. Our shackles, they were made with our own hands. Our toil is our atonement, and our freedom is yours to give. So Yahweh, break this silence if you can. That's the mindset of the latter prophets. I know we usually talk about major and minor prophets, but this is the mindset of the latter prophets, the ones who came later in Israel's history. 
they're less concerned about external salvation and they're more concerned about salvation from our sin. For example, Isaiah, who lived during Hezekiah's time, wrote in Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53 about a suffering servant who would come to save us from our sins. He would be crushed for our iniquities. Jeremiah wrote about a new covenant. Not like the old covenant, just external, but something that would be written on our hearts. And Ezekiel, who lived through the exile, wrote about the Spirit of God coming to the people of God and taking out their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh. And Daniel, who lived in exile in Babylon, wrote about a day when the Lord would act to put an end to sin and finally atone for iniquity. The latter prophets. Who's going to save us from us? We need a Savior who will save us from our sins. And they waited for this Savior to come. Those promises from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, they echoed for centuries and they waited for a Savior. And then we read this in Luke chapter 2. The angel said to them, Fear not, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And the shepherds think to themselves, well, what kind of Savior is he going to be? He's going to save us from the Romans like God saved his people from all those external threats in the past? No, the angel explained it to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1. The angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. You will call his name Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. The life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus is the centerpiece of God saving us. It's the centerpiece. It's not the only piece. It's what we celebrate at Christmas, the birth of a Savior. It's not the only thing that we celebrate when we take the Lord's Supper together because our salvation is a work of the triune God. And I think you see that all the way back in Psalm 119. So, very quickly, I want to acknowledge that the Father loved us. The Father loved us when we were not lovable. You notice the psalmist in verse 156 talks about God's mercy. And in verse 159, he talks about his steadfast love, his hesed. He needs God's love. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The father loved us. Secondly, the son died for us. He died for us. He died to deliver us. He died as our advocate, the one who pleads our cause. He died to redeem us. John 10, Jesus said that he was the good shepherd and the good shepherd would lay down his life for the sheep. So the Father loved us and the Son died for us and the Holy Spirit gives us life. We did family devo last week and I asked my, my kids, we read this resh section and I said, what word do you see repeated? And they were tracking along. They said, we see the word life three times. Life, life, life. 
Who's the one that gives us life? It's the Spirit of God. Jesus in John chapter 6 said, It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. You can't create life on your own. You're dead in your sins. It's the Spirit of God who creates life in the people of God. God's Word is the story of what the triune God has done to save people for His glory. The Father loving us, the Son dying for us, and the Spirit giving us life. It's what we celebrate when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So this morning, if you have repented of your sin, you've agreed with God about your sin, what the Bible says about our sinful condition, you've put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and who He is and what He accomplished on our behalf, and you've been obedient to the Lord's command to be baptized, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us this morning. I'll ask you to take the elements if you have those ready. And we're going to read this morning from Matthew chapter 26. You can open the side that has the bread. And I'll read Matthew 26, 26. It says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it. And he gave it to the disciples and he said, take, eat, this is my body. We'll take the cup and read, beginning in the very next verse, verse 27. It says, He took a cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in My Father's kingdom. Father, as your people, this morning we're grateful. We're grateful for your word that is true. True and unchanging. It's entirely true and it's eternally true. Father, we thank you for a rock underneath our feet. Father, we pray that you would help us to believe and understand the truth about what your word says about us and our fallenness, our sinfulness, our depravity. Lord, help us to to speak clearly when it comes to right and wrong and good and evil. And Father, if we're going to speak clearly about those things, we're going to acknowledge that we, we have fallen far short of your glory and that the wages of our sin is death. And that the only reason that we have life is because you loved us, you sent your Son to die for us, and you sent your Spirit to bring life out of death to change our heart, to write this new covenant on our hearts. Father, help us to believe this morning that salvation is from you. Salvation is from the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. Father, as we end this service, we want to sing about this centerpiece of our salvation, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to remind ourselves that not only did He die for us, but He rose from the dead, and He's alive. He defeated sin and death, and that gives us great hope today. So, Lord, be honored in our singing. We do it for Your glory, and we do it in Jesus' name. Amen.